Thank you very much, Lynn and Eve. And I hope indeed that you are living in that rain, the living water supplied by God. I want to direct your attention to John chapter 7. So if you have your Bible with you or need to make use of one located in the chairs near where you're seated, please do so. John chapter 7. This morning our focus will be on three verses, verses 37 through 39. As you're turning there, I just want to give you a, another word of praise and a request for continued prayer on behalf of Emma. She had a very good week, especially on Wednesday in therapy. Uh, she actually had two therapy sessions on Wednesday. Uh, wanted to see how she could handle having a workout in the morning and in the afternoon, which she did very well. In the morning, the focus was on her arms, and the therapist is still seeing a lot of movement, especially in her left arm and movement on command. But the afternoon was quite amazing. We actually placed her on her physical therapy table. She was laid on her side and on command for three straight times. When she was asked to turn on her back, Emma was able to do it with no assistance, none at all. So that was very encouraging. So keep praying. Yeah, give God the glory. It's certainly His his hand at work in the fact that we are seeing such movement with her. I direct your attention to John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Hear, hear the word of the Lord. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Would you bow with me in prayer again? Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear your voice. Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize the thirst that we have, the thirst that we very often mask with things that we believe will quench it, but really only make the thirst greater. So, Father, this morning we want to take you at your invitation. We want to come and drink. Grant us this, Father, according to your word we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, with the mention of Christmas in July, led by our women on mission, and in preparation for this, this message and looking at the context in John, I couldn't help but think of a Christmas parade. Now think about that for just a moment. What is the culmination that signifies the end of the parade, but it's the one event that everyone, especially the children, look forward to in a Christmas parade? Exactly. It signifies the end of it, and it ends on this high note of, yes, Christmas, the Christmas season is here upon us. Well, the passage that I just read deals with the parade. During this Feast of Tabernacles, which has been the context for all of John chapter 7, Jesus has been in Jerusalem for what amounts to a, a week-long celebration. It was a time of remembering God's deliverance. But there was one event that took place every day of the festival. Every morning there would be a parade. And it was a parade led by the priest. One of the priests would take a large goblet and he would go to the pool of Siloam and he would scoop up a goblet full of water. And then he would begin leading a procession to go back up to the temple mount and go to an altar. 
And people would fall in line behind the priest. And as they would fall in line, they would be singing. They would start singing what's called the Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. Psalms that are full of praise and all begin with hallelujah. And so there is this joyous celebration as they are walking in this parade up to the temple. And then when they got to the altar they would stop. And all the men as they would recite Psalm 118 would take out a palm branch and would begin waving it and start shouting give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And the priest would take out this goblet and would pour the water out on the altar. That would take place every day. But there was something different on the final day. Verse 37 calls it the great day. On this day the parade would take place and, and pilgrims and, and member of people of Jerusalem would come and they would join in singing hallelujah and they would shout give thanks to the Lord. But on this day the priest would walk around the altar seven times allowing more time for singing, more times for the people to shout out give thanks to the Lord. And then he would pour out the water, water upon the altar. Now the reason they did this was to remember that when their forefathers were in the wilderness and they reached a point where they had run out of water and they began asking God, where's water? And they would grumble to Moses, Moses, why did God bring us out here to die? Die of thirst in this desolate land. And God spoke to Moses. And he said, I want you to go to the rock and speak to the rock and I'll provide this need. But Moses was probably a lot like me and you. He'd gotten sick and tired of hearing the grumbling. And so what does Moses do? He takes his staff and I meant to kick that and make a noise. <laughs> he strikes the rock. And water comes out. Now this is not just a little trickle of water. This is water coming from a rock in large enough amounts that it could supply water for well over half a million people. And not only water for half a million people, but supply water for their livestock so that they were well watered. God brought water from a rock to supply the needs of his people. But this act the priest would do every day of this feast wasn't just about remembering the past. It was also seeking God's provision in the present. I direct your attention to the screens where you'll see Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. Zechariah says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Booths. That's what they've been celebrating all week. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Now that's a word from God in the negative sense. If you don't keep the feast of booths, no rain. But the positive of that is this. If you do keep the feast of booths and you worship the Lord, then there will be rain. In other words, just as God provided the need for water in the past, our God will provide your need for water now. And so when the priests were celebrating this, there was an aspect of remembering the past, but also claiming God's promise for the present. But there was also one more element. Not only were they remembering the past and proclaiming God's promise to supply our needs in the present, 
They were looking forward to the future. A future day when God's Spirit would be all over the earth and needs would be provided in excess of whatever the need may be. You'll see this promise in Zechariah 14.8. On that day, that day referencing judgment, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem. Living waters, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. He says on that day of the fulfillment of God's promises... Living water will come out of Jerusalem and it will cover the world. That's why it says half to the east, half to the west. And it will be an abundance of water continuing in the summer as in the winter. This was also echoed in Ezekiel chapter 47 when there is this image of the temple of God that fills the earth and water flows from it and everywhere the water touches it gives life. And now Jesus is in Jerusalem on this great day. And as the priest is going through the rite that he has practiced every day of this festival, Jesus raises his voice. Notice verse 37. He stands and he cries out over the voices of the priest, over the voices of the pilgrims that are singing. Now comes the voice of Jesus Christ and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water by making that statement Jesus is saying that everything this feast is about is fulfilled in him he is saying that he is the rock by which water came to supply what Israel needed a thought echoed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 Jesus is saying I am the one who will meet your present needs and he is saying I am the one that is bringing to fruition the promise made in Zechariah and the promise made in Ezekiel I am the one that is the fulfillment of the past the present and the future and then Jesus issues an invitation. It's an invitation that echoes what Nathan read earlier in Isaiah 55.1. Come and drink of this water. Come and partake of it. Now you recognize this invitation to drink is addressing a thirst that goes far beyond the physical needs of this world. The thirst that Jesus is addressing is a thirst that cannot be met by physical things here and now. He's dealing with the longings that each of us have. Longings for love. For significance. Longings for value. Longings for peace. Longings that have been given to us by God that can only be met by God. The problem is, is that we believe the lie that the things around us can meet these longings. But they don't. Trying to meet this thirst with physical things is a lot like being outside working on a day like yesterday when it's hot and muggy. And you start out doing yard work. And you're, you're, you're trimming that bush and you're thinking to yourself, I should have cut, cut, torn this thing out of the ground years ago. And you're hot. And you're deep down thirsty. So you go up and you're dirty, but you're so thirsty you don't want to wait. And you just knock and you say, could you just give me some water? And what you're met with then is a Dixie cup filled with water. Oh, no, it's, it's wet. And you drink it. 
and you're thankful for it. But does it really slake your thirst? Does it really satisfy that deep? No, there's not enough. It doesn't last. Trying to meet our spiritual needs with the things of this world is like getting a cup of Dixie water on a hot summer day. It just doesn't meet the need. This is a thirst that can only be met by God. And it's a hunger that drives us to God. C.S. Lewis in his classic work, Mere Christianity, put it like this. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. That hunger you have for love, for value, for peace, for joy, is meant to drive you to God as the only way those deep needs can be met. That's why Jesus says, come to me. The longing you have for God can only be met in Christ. That's why he issues this invitation. And I want you to notice, he answers the question if we ask, how can we come and drink of this? Verse 38, he says, whoever believes in me. The idea of believing and coming are parallel ideas, running along the same track to the same destination in Jesus. The way we drink is by believing, by having faith in Christ. And the result of believing is given in verse 38. He says, when you believe or when you drink, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now I want you to notice some things about these living waters. Notice first the source. There's a bit of a debate that has raged for hundreds of years among theologians and academicians about verse 38. It revolves around the word his. You see, grammatically, his could refer to the heart of Jesus. Some interpret it to say, you come and out of Jesus' heart you will experience living waters. And this indeed meets the imagery of Ezekiel of the water flowing out of the temple. But you can also make the argument grammatically that his refers to the believer. That out of the believer's heart, there will be the spirit that gives rivers of living water. Well, I've not studied this for many years, but this week as I was diving into this text, I came to my conclusion. And my conclusion on how to answer both of those questions is, yes. I think it's, there's a level of ambiguity for a reason. It's to remind us that the source is indeed Jesus. But it is Jesus doing something within us. So that out of His living waters, we experience living waters. Because the source is Jesus. And verse 39 says plainly, He said this about the Spirit. So the Spirit is the living waters. And He points out in verse 39, Whom those who believed 
in him were, were to receive. They're still looking forward in John chapter 7, whereas we look backwards on the day of Pentecost because he says Jesus was not yet glorified. The glorification refers to his death, resurrection, and ascension. We look back and say he has been crucified, he has been resurrected, and he has ascended, and the Spirit has been given. It has been sent forth by Jesus to meet our need in our heart. So the source is Jesus that plants that source, the Spirit, within our hearts. Now, source matters. Where these waters come from matters. If you ever look at the store and you look at all the different varieties of bottled water, you'll notice one thing on the labels is that almost every brand is very proud of where it is bottled. You will see brands of bottled water that will say, bottled on the islands of Fiji. You will see bottles of water bottled in mountain streams. I've yet to see a bottle that says very plainly, taken straight from Watauga Lake. The source matters. You want a source that is pure, that gives what you need. And that's what Jesus is saying. There will be a transformation. And as he speaks, notice where this source flows from. The heart. The heart is your center of being. It's where desire and will meet. It's where what you want and the determination to get that come together. Your heart is who defi what defines who you are. Our, our lives flow from our hearts. But also when he says it flows from the heart, I think these are words showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant promised in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. In those passages it says, in the new covenant, God will write his law on your heart. So the law is not just an external thing you're trying to, to meet. It's something from within where now you have a desire to love and obey God. Whereas before that desire was absent. He is saying a change takes place internally. Jesus used this language in John chapter 3 when he said, Unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That idea of being born again speaks of a new heart. And notice what that means then is that these living waters, life-giving waters, they are not dependent on external things. But it's dependent upon what God is doing within you. If the living waters are dependent on external things around you, then you can lose those life-giving waters. You see, that's where we fall into the lie that says, what I'm looking for can be met in another person. But what if that other person is taken? If our lives are built around them rather than God, we will not experience life-giving waters. If we if we focus on things and say, that's what gives me life, meaning, peace. What happens when those things are gone? When the house that was to be the symbol of your status is burned to the ground. When the car, the car that brought so much joy stops running. You see, we need something that's not external but internal to give us joy and peace and satisfaction and eternal life. A week or so ago, New York City experienced a blackout. It was reminiscent, they said, of the 1977 blackout in New York City that lasted for hours. I cannot imagine 
anything more horrifying than to be on a subway in New York City in a blackout. But then it struck me as I was watching the news accounts of what was going on that if you were to go into Central Park that night and you looked around, you would probably see fireflies. And guess what? Were those fireflies affected by the blackout? No. Flickering. Shining their light. Why? Because the source of their light was not found in things around them, but within them. So God is saying this source of eternal life, this source of living waters will be within you because the Spirit dwells within you. And notice the abundance of it. Do you notice in verse 39 it's plural? It's not a river of living water. It's rivers. So out of your heart he is saying the Spirit will flow in abundance. Not just a trickle, not just a Dixie cup size, but in abundance there will be an overflow of life-giving water. In other words, the Spirit will be overflowing in your life. You can think of it in terms of when in the 1950s the idea was proposed in Egypt of building what then was the largest dam in the world, the Aswan Dam. It would span the Nile River, supplying energy to that area. And it was going to be over a 20-year project. In fact, the dam was completed in 1970, and it stood 370 feet high, 11,000 feet across. But the problem the engineers faced was this, as the dam was being constructed, what would the farmers and the citizens who depended on the Nile River do for water? So they came up with a plan that as different sections of the dam were being built, little bits of the Nile would be released. It wasn't the full Nile, but it was enough. It was enough to accomplish the need, enough to get water for crops, enough to get water to drink. But then the day came in 1970 when they celebrated the opening of the Aswan Dam. And the switch was flipped, the button pushed, and the floodgates opened, and the Nile in all of its power began flowing and roaring down. And could you imagine a farmer standing there, and he's looking at this little trickle, and all of a sudden he hears the roar of a river coming downstream. We see little trickles of the Spirit in the Old Testament working, but you realize on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit has been given in full to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. He says the Spirit comes filling you, transforming you, regenerating you, so that now you are filled with the Spirit and are experiencing the overflow of the Spirit working in your life. So believer, this begs the question, what's coming out of your heart? Believer, is it life-giving? Does your life give evidence of having rivers of life, of living water flowing out of your life? As I've taken up the game of golf, I enjoy going a few times out to the driving range each week to work on my game. I work a lot. And I remember as I was leaving, there was a man that had pulled up and he was on the driving range and he was hitting balls and I was leaving. And as I was walking to my car, I started hearing what could only be described as, a, as an eruption of vulgarity. This man became angry. And I don't mean just a little bit angry. I mean, I did not look back, but being a good southerner, I was polite enough to wait till I turned and put my clubs in my car to stare at him. 
And I saw him in a rage beat a club on the ground, throw it down, pick up the bucket of balls and just throw them. Now, I don't want to sound judgmental because goodness knows golf will test you. But I thought, this is a driving range. That's where you're supposed to hit bad shots and work on it. And I don't know what was going on in his life. I really don't. There may have been things I'm not even aware of. But here's my point. What was coming out at that moment revealed his heart. And I can look at him and I can say, whoa, that's bad. But then I look at myself and I say, how many times have I exploded in anger? Or maybe it's not even that. How many times have I put in a little jab of sarcasm to express, okay, something's bothering me? What does our lives show about what's flowing out of our heart? Is it life-giving? Can those that are closest to us say that when they're around, they experience life-giving waters? Because guess what? If it's in your heart abundantly, that's what's going to flow out. If what's flowing out of your heart is not life-giving, then I must ask two questions. First is this. What's polluting it? What is it that's polluting your heart so that it's not life-giving? Of course, as I was studying this week, I had to follow the theme of rivers. So out of curiosity, I googled what is the most polluted river in the world. And consistently, across the board of Google, it said the Ganges River in India is the most polluted river in the world. It's very tragic. Raw sewage empties into it. Chemicals have been spilled into it. They say there are literally mounds of plastic bottles floating down the river. Did you know that river is the source of water for 2 billion people? And you know what's even more ironic? By the adherence of Hinduism, it's considered holy. Their holy river is so polluted as to be deadly. Believers, we're made holy by God. Have we allowed things to pollute our holy river, our lives? What can have a hold in our lives that's polluting it? What are we allowing into our hearts that's turning the living water putrid? Greed? Envy? Pornography? Jealousy? What's polluting it? There's a second issue I must ask about. Have you dammed up your river? In other words, you've professed to be a follower of Christ, you've experienced the joy, but it's not getting out. And the reason is, you've built a dam of anger. And on the outside, you may cover it up, and, and you may only express that anger in little barbs and in little verbal words and nonverbal cues, but deep down there is an anger and an unforgiveness. Because you've been hurt, you've built up this wall. You may not say it, but those around you experience it. They know that there's not living water flowing out of it. For some, it's busyness. You've dammed up the living walls because you are so busy, you never take time to pray, to read, or even to love those around you. But I want you to know the pollution can be removed. The dam you've constructed can be torn down. And that happens by taking Jesus at his word and coming back to the source. 
coming back to him. To take him at his invitation. If you are thirsty, if you are tired of a polluted river flowing out of your heart, come to him and say, Lord, forgive me. I repent. Purify my heart. Or, Lord, I'm sick and tired of anger determining everything about me. Lord, tear down this dam and let me experience joy and peace as I receive the forgiveness you give me and I extend that forgiveness to others. Come back to the source. The invitation still echoes. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, Jesus says, and drink. Will you come? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me.